Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, A Worker's Guide to Everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenas Hello and welcome to another Trademark Podcast. This is Mr. Stefan Newline. I'm joined here today by our regular Stuart McGill. Um, he's joining us from Londinium. Uh, of course, Stuart's not from London. Thank fuck, he's Scott. And we're very pleased to have him on our podcast. It always gives us a concrete analysis of a concrete situation. You're very welcome, Stuart. And of course, I am a proud citizen of the Irish Republic. I have a Scottish name and uh, uh, the family lived in Scotland for a while, but I regard myself as Irish rather than There you Scotland. go. Fucking even better. Even fucking better. Um, I did spend quite a lot of time as a kid living in what we like to call the occupied six counties still. Just up the road from me, not too bad, Newcastle. Anyway, look, today right. we're talking about a subject that, uh, to say it's current is a huge understatement. We're talking about housing, and we're talking about housing under capitalism in particular. We may do more than one podcast on this. It's a huge issue. I mean, um, the one thing we do know, and obviously we're going to come at this from a left and a Marxist perspective, that um, in, in a capitalist society, housing is is a commodity. That's just the reality of it. Increasingly so. It wasn't always the case under capitalism. We may have a talk about the historical shifts between private and state uh, provision. Um, but it shares, therefore, housing as a commodity, the characteristics of, of the commodity under capitalism. Marx um, told us so much about. Um, but the difference with housing, of course, Stuart, is it's a particularly important commodity in a capitalist society because it's part of the process of how capitalism reproduces itself by housing workers and so on. And I was reading the other day that something of nearly 400 million households around the world, so that's over well over a billion people, don't have access to a decent or affordable home. It's becoming an increasingly difficult issue everywhere in all societies, including in the, the metropolitan centre, not just on the periphery of empire. Um, and so the social use of housing, Stuart, is, is subordinate, therefore, to its economic value. And that's our old friend, isn't it, of use value and exchange mm. value. What does that tell us about what's happening under capitalism at the moment, that it's the exchange value of the, of the home, if you like, of the dwelling that's more important or taking priority over its use value? Yeah, I think the increase in housing prices lately and uh, the housing crisis, which is largely a derivative of the factors which have led to the increase in um, house, uh, basically house prices, but also rents, you've got to see in the context of what people are referring to more and more as the asset price economy. There's a very interesting little book by Adkins, Cooper and uh, Martin Konings, who I think are all based in the University of Sydney the asset economy. It could be written in slightly more accessible language, but it's very good in what's happened lately. And uh, that prompted me to go ahead and look at something from McKinsey's, who were not exactly fucking comrades, but uh, McKinsey's consultancy host. did a very interesting study of combined balance sheets of 10 major economies since 2000. Home prices have tripled on average across those 10 countries. Asset prices in general, relative to income, 50% higher than a long-run average. So wealth and growth are now completely disconnected. Higher asset prices accounted for over 70% of the growth in net worth. Savings and investment, only 28% of that growth. So, and, and increasing amounts of that investment, this is your point, I think, isn't it, as well, though, are being invested in housing and in property and in land as well. Oh, my God, absolutely. Yeah, when you look at uh, that... King what, does that what does that tell us about the state of capitalism, just more broadly, that the, the place to park your investments or to put your investments is now housing? Is it just a... So they see it as a safe port in a storm or what? 
I think you have to look at various policy decisions taken sometime in the 70s and the early 80s. Uh, certainly in the 70s and, and most certainly in the 80s, whenever they made credit more available for housing, that led to a step change in, we'll talk about this in more detail later, mm. that led to a step change in bank lending. It turned the banks largely into property lenders. And I think that's an important factor there. And also mm. tax on capital gains. All right, they reduced that both in Europe, Britain, and across America. So now the, the economic surplus is much better and much more safely employed from the point of view of investors by investing in assets rather than in, uh, I guess, new plant and machinery, et cetera. It has a certain risk attached. But basically, it's, yeah, it's a more speculative economy than ever before, as opposed to what you might consider traditional industrial capitalism, where you invest in factories to make products to be sold on markets, which had its own problems historically. So look, so really what we're saying is that um, housing now functions as a as a as a commodity uh, and property as well. But how we're focusing yep. on housing in particular today, rather than but I mean, come you could talk for 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 weeks about the, the role of commercial property as well, and also student mm. student. Well, I'm including student accommodation. This I know you want to talk a bit about that later on. But it's yeah. it's it's a uh, it's treated as a commodity to a greater extent than ever before under capitalism, and that's of course what you just said is it lies at the heart of the housing crisis. Um, and today it might even be hard to imagine that housing could be organised in any other way than just as a commodity produced for sale, because people are forgetting and losing track of the fact that over oh, 100 years or more, housing has been, had its social use was more important, its use was more important than exchange value. But in the history of human settlements, I mean, the, treat, the, the treatment of dwelling place, a dwelling place as, a, as a commodity is kind of relatively new, isn't it? And even under capitalism, early capitalism, housing wasn't necessarily like an independent sector of the economy or a byproduct, but it was it was based upon the need to house the new industrial working class, wasn't it? I mean, the first I saw his incident of that was the Tide House, wasn't it? Next to the to the mill, if like the diastolic mills of, of Northern England. But Tide Housing was the first time you saw capitalism actually we're gonna have to put these people in a fucking house, aren't we, to keep them healthy, to reproduce capitalism. It kept them just about healthy. I mean, if you look at the Engels work in housing, mm. uh, not just the condition of the working class in England, which was, what, 1845? But some of Engels' later work on housing, it just about kept people going. Uh, but people were in a hell of a state compared to how they, how they had been in the early 18th century. So poor housing was always an issue. Uh, and I think that the step I think they referred, they, they referred to it, didn't they, at that point, as a social disaster. That's what working class housing was. It was a real issue, wasn't it, late 19th century? Well, it was hideous. It was absolutely hideous. And the state of the working class was so bad after, well, say, about 120 years of, of, of capitalism, uh, the shit conditions, the, the crap wages, that, I mean, this, the Luddites were actually right. It took until sometime in the, I think, the 1860s, the 1870s, before real wages got back to where they were for the average working guy in the late 18th century, but in much more hideous conditions. The, um, the state of the working class physique and health was so bad that in 1914, a hell of a lot of people got rejected when they volunteered for the war. And they had to mm -hmm. put conditions, or uh, they put the criteria back to those that applied in 1815. So people wow. were in bad shape for a variety of reasons, but crap housing, crap condition, and crap environment was one of them. After the war, there was a recognition that something had to be done. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, between 1910 and 1914 in particular, there was a real potentially revolutionary outbreak across Britain. And of course, Ireland, we had our own problems. That book by George Dangerfield, The Strange Death of Liberal Lincoln, talks about the real revolutionary ferment that was taking place there. So they realized they had to do something. And in between the wars, there was a major program of public housing. 
Yeah, so in in the first decades of the 20th century, first in Britain, but if it was followed by other capitalist states, as you said, you saw this mass unrest was focused on that social disaster that was yeah. that was housing, which itself was a result of the commodification of, of home and dwelling places. Um, and it's in that period, I remember, I grew up in London, so I remember the Peabody buildings, you saw the first sort of philanthropic intervention into the market, where you had oligarchs, captains of industry. Um, but that wasn't at the goodness of their heart, was it? And neither was the state social house building programs of the 20s and 30s, particularly here in Ireland, of course, with the Fianna Fáil government of the 30s, sure, mass house building programs. It wasn't necessarily at the goodness of their heart for the benefit of the workers, though, was it? It was for the benefit of the system, for the benefit of capitalism. I think it was for the benefit of capitalism and it kept social unrest done. Hmm. I think it was a recognition something had to be done to award these people, particularly after the massive sacrifices, loss of life in World War One. And the memory of that social ferment between 1910 and 1914 was there. So it was a feeling that they had to do something um, to rectify the situation. Also, the, people have a view of the interwar years as being ones of extreme poverty and deprivation. In certain parts of Britain, there were. The old traditional industry parts, they fell apart to a large extent. When you go around, certainly the suburbs of London, where I think you were from, uh, and also when you go around large parts of the southeast and the West Midlands, a huge proportion of the houses there were built in the 1920s and the 1930s. Mm. In the southeast, the West Midlands, there was basically an economic boom because of housing and also because of the bicycle and the rise of the motor car industry. So there was, a, in Marxist terms, a time of a very extreme, uneven development of capitalism there. But I think we, we underestimate how important housing is to the overall system in terms of stimulating economic growth. When you mm. look at those areas, the southeast, the West Midlands in particular, interwar years, times of extreme growth, because every time you build a house, you give a job to a large number of people. Certainly a large part of the post-war boom could be attributed to the massive increase in housing there was at that time. I think in 1968, there were something like 425,000 houses built, a record which we've got nowhere near achieving in these days. But that did stimulate a lot of economic growth. It's funny that because we tend to ignore the role of housing, I suppose, in economic growth, particularly in that, as you said, that period of the 20s and 30s, particularly the post-war boom, the golden period of capitalism, yeah. we say, after the 1940s. But that's different again, though, isn't it? The than the process that we're seeing happening now where housing and property is becoming more of a speculative activity. Those are different kinds of investment, aren't they, with different kinds of outcomes. As a, If you're a social democrat or a left social democrat, you could say, well, actually building houses for workers stimulates positive economic growth and it stimulates towns and stimulates regional economies, local economies and all the rest of it, whereas giving up all of those homes over to, if you like, private landlords and and um, private corporations is a different kind of investment with a different kind of outcome. We want to get onto that one. Before we get into that period, and particularly the period of the, the, the commodification of housing as a, as you said, as a, as a safe place to invest or, or as an asset class, if you like, what about the period, the first period of mass home ownership and individual home ownership? Because there's different things you can talk about in housing. One is, of course, private renting and the private renting sector, and we'll get onto that. Um, the other is local authority or state provision. But there's also the idea, as you said, of private financing, of mortgages, and of mass home ownership. That was quite a new concept, wasn't it? And I remember reading before about the 1920s under Woodrow Wilson was the first big experiment in the States of trying to get workers to buy houses, to, to individualise that. So they weren't, they weren't going to private landlords, so they weren't relying upon private rent sector. They were going to own their own property. On one hand, it's deeply ideological because it's about freedom and liberty and I own my own home yeah. and all the rest of it. On another hand, you could argue, we've, we've argued this before in a podcast, is that um, it's also a great way to discipline a worker, is to get a worker to be in debt for their entire life. So what does that period of mass home ownership tell us? Was it 
Was it as cynical as that? Was it just about disciplining workers? I think you have to look at anything like this, anything done by the capitalist class with the purpose and intent of making sure that the working class are less inclined to get pissed off and revolt. Uh, There's a very good wee documentary I saw a couple of years ago about um, the housing in the UK. And one of Thatcher's people actually said one of the large factors behind the right to buy policy was people who own their homes are more likely to vote Tory. And also people who own their homes are more likely to have debt. And people with debt tend to be a little bit more disciplined than those that don't have it. It's also about giving people some sort of stake in society. Maybe we'll talk Mm. about Singapore a little bit later, but I think that the Singaporeans like to have their people to feel that stake. So they do have a massive public housing program there. Uh, People will tend to buy the houses, but it makes you feel part of the economy and part of society. So I think it makes you feel like you're succeeding, of course, if you own, if you think you own an asset or a property. Absolutely. And then to a certain extent, you are certainly these days because it is very difficult to do so. And there's also the cultural thing uh, that you feel more independent, more free, like you've made it if you own a house. Uh, And I think these are important cultural things that they've imbued us with, not just uh, in Britain, but across Ireland and also in Europe as well. So, yeah, uh, the debt is very important, too. If you have a huge amount of debt, it does make you more inclined to go ahead and comply. Yes, yeah, so, uh, podcast a while ago. Yeah, no, we did. Yeah, so let's talk very briefly about the private rented sector at the moment. Just uh, we could talk all day about the private rented sector in Ireland. It's fucking horrendous. I know it's getting bad in Britain. And in fact, whenever I read about it, it seems to emerge in everywhere. I keep reading about new economies or economies where you thought had a kind of a social democratic feel to them. Then when it comes to housing, they're all going through the same processes, which is increasing. Increasing uh, concentration of home ownership in the hands of private landlords and corporations that are investing in in homes and private renting has become a massive problem for people now. Um, and private renting across economies, as I said, is growing everywhere. And and really, that's just a massive transfer of wealth from workers to capital, isn't it? I mean, that, that's basically what's happening here in political economy terms. The average monthly rent as a percentage of average monthly earnings in Ireland is up towards somewhere of like fifty percent or more in Dublin or something, or fifty-five percent or sixty percent. It's getting to the point where in London know, the... it's about seventy-five percent of post-tax income. And people are paid pretty well here. It is actually fucking ridiculous and completely unsustainable. And there's also a transfer of wealth to property owners away from the rest of the economy because the money that people are having to spend on rent, they're not spending on other stuff. So it's Mm. one more thing which is kind of in-building stagnation into the economy. Um, Very brief bit of history here. In 1980, before all this bullshit began, around 41% of people in Britain lived in council homes. It's now around 7 to 8%. And there is a stigma in living in the council estate these days. It's funny. Could I interrupt? It's funny now. I grew up in council houses and all my life until my dad bought the Thatcher Dream. When I was, I think, about 15, my dad bought, mum and dad bought a house. But when I first moved back to Ireland and stuff, and down, so it was even here, it was like, what do you mean you didn't own your own home? Because in Ireland, had, Ireland always had, particularly the free state, yeah. had a quite high, high percentage of home ownership. But when I grew up in London, I didn't know anyone that lived in a, no, their own home. Everyone lived in fucking council's houses, as I was concerned. I was quite surprised to realise that there were this whole class of people who didn't live in them. And it was, it was normal, isn't, wasn't it? But it's not there. Oh, it was normal. Yeah, I was just I was chatting to somebody about this a while ago. And we said that when we were kids, pretty much everybody we knew lived in a scheme of some sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, people made a little bit more dosh. They made the council houses available. Something like 40% of council houses, no, council houses which have been sold are 
uh, owned by private landlords that mm. rent them out at market rates to the rest of the poor bastards who can't afford to buy a house. Uh, this, this and yet, and yet the, 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 the other side of that is a government spending more than ever supporting people to live in rental property through the provision of housing benefit, of course, which is, again, a direct transfer of, of wealth from, from us or from the state to, to private capital. Absolutely. The, the increase in housing benefit has been cataclysmic over the last 30, 40 odd years because rents are just too high. Uh, this impacts on me directly. We live in a nice area and house prices have risen here considerably. So it's good from one point of view. My daughter, who has a very well paid job, she lives down the road with um, three friends of hers she's known for a long time. There are obviously pressures with living with people. Uh, but right now, she a very well-paid software developer cannot afford to get a place she can rent by herself and she certainly cannot afford to live in a place. So at some point here, we are going to have to go ahead and give her a reasonably substantial amount of money for her to go ahead and buy her own place. Or she ends up pissing the whole thing away in rent and living in dodgy areas. But there's and millions she's... of people in that position now. Oh my God. That's the point. Yeah, so but, not, but not everyone can do that. Unfortunately, not everyone has access to fucking to, to those kinds of assistance. So oh, this is the exact same point I was trying to make. This is not an intergenerational issue. This the, the class factor. And these guys who wrote the asset economy book are actually pretty good on this. When people talk about this being a transfer of wealth between the generations, it's not. It's actually a class thing because we'll be able to afford to go ahead and help her out. A lot of people won't. Hmm. And this area now is full of people like her who are in the rental market. And these are people with dough, and that means rent prices go up because you've got a yeah. hell of a lot of people around here. I mean, the, the houses in our little block, they get rented out for about £1,900, £2,000 a fucking month, which is insane. It's a nice area, don't get me wrong, but these are not really big, fancy places. If it's a nice it's, area, how comes they let you live in it? But anyway, that's a side issue. I want to carry on and get the next question. But I think you're thing. not the first person to have asked that question. I get set that on a regular basis in the neighbourhood watch. The, uh, but that's that, that's one of the problems here, isn't it, that, I mean, the more and more houses ending up in the private rented sector and more and more people being forced into the private rented sector because there's no available social housing. As a housing and land are not sources of economic wealth. And this is the important Marxist bit, I suppose, of the podcast is, I mean, they're a, they're a source of economic rent. They're a, they're a means of extracting wealth from others. That, that's all That's all they do is they're extractive. They pull out of the economy. So it's about the capitalist class getting a in their own terms, getting a larger share of the pie, but not increasing the size of the pie, because you're not creating wealth, you're just extracting the wealth that's been created somewhere else in the economy. Isn't that right? I think that's very, very true. And when you look at the banking sector right now, just hold on a second. So I need to go through some of the figures here, because the figures are absolutely fucking extraordinary. Whenever they talk about that sorting out the house prices, there are two things that will stop them. One is the fact that homeowners are such an important part of the economy and homeowners will get out there and vote. So they will mm. do nothing uh, that will affect people's house prices. My generation, uh, whatever generation we call us, I guess I'm the last of the baby boomers, all we seem to give a toss about is our house prices going up. But the banks care about it even more. Uh, you'll find these figures in some of my recent works, which I shall publicize later. When you look from mortgage debt outstanding, has increased from around 30% of net disposable income in 87 to almost 100% now. In the early 80s, domestic mortgage lending, 20% of GDP. It's now over 60%. Lending to non-financial firms has stayed at around 20 to 30%. Now, commercial real estate lending was all just over 14% of non-financial business lending in 86. 
By 2014, that figure had risen to almost 60%. Some people would say it's around 70. Some so basically the money being lent by, by, by the finance part of capital is just for speculation on property and housing. It's not for creating a productive economy. That's the point here, isn't it? What has happened is that the banks have come, become primarily property lenders. This happened mm. in the States as well. We talked about this a little bit a while ago in the, uh, the podcast on the state of the financial sector. Uh, you've got the banks who are very influential with the major party, uh, both sides of the Atlantic, uh, and very politically influential here because the Tories get 50% of their finance from, yeah. the, uh, from the financial sector. And if there is a serious drop in property prices, and indeed in the associated land prices, they suffer. The banks do suffer pretty badly. So there should have been a big correction after 2008. Uh, the banks uh, and the big property firms owned a huge amount of land, much of which they had got at a ridiculously cheap rate from the public sector. Had those land prices been allowed to drop, to float downwards, it would have caused a major problem for the financial sector and for the property people. So they were kept up. And also, the concern does seem to be from a, uh, I guess, a retail political view, keeping homeowners happy. Uh, that's the, the both Labour and the Tories have been very attentive on doing that. So, the so you've got this. So you've got two. You've got three things again. Back to the gun of the, the political economy, the structure of the political economy. You have private rented sector, which is a form of extracting wealth from workers yeah. straight from the, the pockets of workers into the landlord class or the corporate landlord class or individual landlords. Um, but then you've got homeowners who are an important, as you said, political tool. They're, they're a political tool in the sense of electoral politics because they're the people, as you said, that vote. And so the government has to look after that pool of people. But then you have the asset class as well the ones who are just buying up land and property and houses simply as a safe place to to park their money so is the capitalist increasingly restricted ability to find profitable fields the reason why they're investing in property and does that speak to the wider malaise of the of contemporary capitalism and therefore there must be another crash coming on the base of that that bubble that housing bubble surely cannot continue to grow with those competing class interests on the one hand and also the idea that you've got mass homelessness, you've got people, eventually there's going to be some sort of social uprising about housing and about homes, isn't there? Because as usual, this nearly happened before. Well, it has happened before and several times. So what does it tell us about the wider capitalist economy, this obsession with property and houses? I think you're quite right. It's a matter of actually utilising the economic surplus to invest in things, invest in tax dodges uh, and invest in property that you think will keep on rising in price because it has kept on rising in price. Now, this is obviously very dangerous. In, in Britain, property prices do tend to increase on a, on, a, on a fairly frequent basis. I think they say in London, your house price will double every seven years. And I think when you look at my house price, yeah, that probably is true, actually. That's mental. Doubling every seven years. That's fucking mental. Oh, it's insane. Yeah, we, we bought this place for 101 in... 96 and i'm not sure what it's worth now but uh, these places aren't that far short of a million some of them go around here so yeah which again for us it's a paper game because we don't want to lose and uh, we don't want to leave the area and also we'll have to give significant amounts of dosh to the kids whenever they want to buy a place mm. themselves but yeah this appreciation is just fucking ridiculous and it can it be sustained when you look at the situation so far mate it's been sustained by by debt a considerable amount of debt has gone into this. There's a considerable amount of political interest in maintaining these house prices. I keep on reading things about um, sales going down, etc. It will have an impact at some point. But I think at the higher end of the market, 
they tend to have kept the value. Because I mean, the point you made before, if, if there's so much money and, and investment going into housing and property, and that is creating debt because people are borrowing, I mean, corporations yeah. are borrowing money off banks to buy more property. Was that not one of the key causes of the 2008 financial crash, that this debt was being built up and the debt's being traded internationally? Are we back in the same kind of game again? Is that what's, is that what's happening on, on the debt markets and on the, on those the in, in those markets? Are, are they securitization still happening? Are they still packaging debt and reselling it and reselling it on? Because at some point, we know the music has to stop. I think it's it's related, but it's slightly different. That's, the 2008 was basically because the uh, the US, the, they were basically lending money to people with no money in the States. Hmm. Uh, and they were uh, packaging securities on the back of that. They had no idea about the extent of their debt and their exposure. Uh, and whenever it all went tits up, it went very badly tits up. I think they can control it better right now. But the US property market has never risen continually like the London or the British property market right. has. Always okay. being up and down. A lot of that uh, was speculation was predicated on markets continuing to rise, particularly house prices, which is massively inaccurate for the states. And many people forecast that collapse before it happened. In London uh, and the rest of Britain, the house prices do seem to rise. We're a different economy from the states. There's a um, more confined space for one thing. Also, we do attract a hell of a lot of investment from mm. overseas. Like I said, overseas investment, 21% increase. I think we also need to talk about the effect of QE on house prices here. Some Bank of England stuff came out a while ago, which suggested that in 2014, house prices would have been 25% less had there been no QE. So, so that, that's for everyone who doesn't know, but I'm sure you will do if you listen to this podcast regularly. That's quantitative ease and that's government created money that created through various means to pump back into the economy. But most of it simply went back into the same finance houses that had caused the crash in 2008. And what did those finance houses do with it? They invested it in property. And in the early part of the QE and in 2008, they invested in commodities too. Mm. So that put the price of um, foodstuffs up for many people across the planet uh, here as well. Yeah. So giving money to uh, finance houses, they're not going to spend it. Well, I think that the figures and the evidence demonstrate they aren't going to spend it on stuff that will improve the overall productive capacity of the economy. They will spend it on stuff which increases their own wealth. And these days, that means asset appreciation. And that's the funny thing, isn't it, here about the capitalist class itself that there's those intercapitalist rivalries are also occurring because obviously it's so bad in sections of the capitalist class are squealing about the excessive costs of leases and rent that they need to pay if they want to run businesses and set up business or grow factories. And they're, they're squealing about the price of commercial properties. They're squealing about their own system. And, and are those tensions going to continue to emerge or will that add to the growing kind of pyramid scheme bubble that we're seeing emerge in terms of property and, and housing? I don't think anybody is able to take on the power of the financial sector, nor indeed the influence of the financial sector over uh, the Conservative Party, mm -hmm. uh, increasingly over what is now called a Labour Party, but does seem to be very much a Tory-like party. Uh, and um, they are massively influential throughout the business world, too. So, yeah, there will be people who complain about this, but they will not have anything like the authority, sorry, pardon, the power and influence of the financial sector. Because it, it's the same here in Ireland, in Dublin in particular. It's incredible. There's, there, there are there are big firms and lots of tech firms that, are, that have moved themselves to Ireland for different kinds of reasons, usually tax dodges and so on and tax yeah. breaks. But even they're complaining about their workers not being able to find homes to live in in Dublin, even though they're paying really kind of decent salaries and stuff. So there's a contradiction there at the heart of this, at the heart of the growth of of the importance of housing and property to the capitalist system that has to reach a point at which it cannot grow beyond. And it must, as you said, correct itself, to use a Schumpeterian term, or crash. Or is it? Or are we still 10 years away from that? Or is it still going to keep growing and growing and growing and things just get worse and fucking worse and worse? 
people have been forecasting a big decrease in house prices in London for a long time right mm. now. Uh, the last time we had this big correction was in the early 90s, uh, and it recovered pretty much by, what's it about? Yeah, just think about my own place. Yeah, by about 2,000, things were back to normal, and the growth increased massively. There is plenty of money around, and if people think the London market will increase, they will stick it in there. The thing is, from the bank's point of view, mortgage lending is cool, because if it goes tits up, you get the house and you get the land. Mm. So the banks will continue to lend. All right, and, that, and that's uh, also very important for the speculators. They'll stick it into these places. It might go down to a certain extent, but they know they'll find somebody to refinance. And at the very top end, right, there will be enough people prepared to invest that they don't see a massive decline in the investment. So the only thing that can solve this, in my view, will be some fairly serious correction, which could be a crash. Is that likely to happen? It's a mugs game to forecast stuff, mate. Mugs game to forecast stuff here. Me, I would say it's 50-50. I think something has to happen because right now it's understood. You're quite right. All right. In, in Dublin, I was reading a while ago, teachers all right, didn't want to go ahead and get jobs because uh, they, they couldn't afford to pay. Listen, there's a mate of mine. I know there's a, there's a well-known trade union, a, a decent trade union that was offering a job for 70, 65, 70,000 euros a year salary in Dublin. And they couldn't get any of their officials from out the country to move into the city because they would lose most of that money or what fifty percent of that money in terms of in terms of rent and stuff, or in terms of trying to buy a gap in Dublin. So I mean, even trade union trade unions are trying to find it hard to to fill positions. You know what I mean? Because of the price of housing. So there has to be a breaking point. I appreciate you're you're saying that we can't predict when that breaking point is going to be. It's too hard. So what's the solution to all this? Considering we're not going to have any socialist governments anytime soon, or even a fucking social democratic government anytime soon. What are the solutions to the housing problem? Or do we simply just struggle on individually helping our families where we can helping those around us where we can watching homelessness grow watching kids emigrate to go to economies where they can afford to fucking live uh or do we just wait for the crash unfortunately i think we're going to have to wait for the crash because i don't see any real i mean when you look at what labor says over here right now and the very i think the only party which has dealt with this properly in ireland has been Sinn Féin, which to as i understand it partly explains their support in the republic mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, to fair. a lesser extent in the north, but Sinn Féin kind of gets it and they've done well on the back of that. But you don't see from any party a clear policy what needs to be done. And what needs to be done is relatively simple. We need to build properly affordable homes. Now, this affordability bullshit they talk about here is something like 60% of the market rent. If the market rent is whatever it is in Kensington or Chelsea, 60% of that's not going to be affordable for the vast majority of people. Mm -hmm. So we need to build proper social housing. This will enable people to get homeless people to be home. That will also enable people who have some dosh. It will enable them to get the place and it will take them out of the uh, rental market. Beg your pardon. It will take them out of the private rental market, which is going insane right now. So, We simply need to build a lot more public housing. And that means compulsory purchase, what we did in the old days, and see it as a priority. But is is the fear that that will affect the price of properties for the homeowning class? That's kind of, as you said, that baby boomer class, the ones that vote. So there's a real fear. I think even in the Republic of Ireland, there's a fear of that, even within, within Sinn Féin, that if they're too radical in terms of social house building or particularly caps on rent and so on, you know, and, and those kinds of things, that they'll lose the votes they're hoping to gain or get them into power if they, particularly if they challenge house prices and if house prices dip because of their policies. 
This is one of the reasons why I'm so skeptical about this as a solution. It needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And what needs to happen is relatively obvious. But you see, the Tories a while ago, they they scrapped that 300,000 homes a year target because that mm -hmm. will affect, obviously, the NIMBY vote, which uh, they're pretty into. Uh, and it will also affect house prices and people that vote Tory and including people that pretend to be Labourites but end up voting Tory, they do give a toss about the house prices. But this will take a major party or major parties to get together get the collective balls and say, we cannot make this policy based solely on the whims of the financial sector and also on homeowners. This needs to happen. Whether it will happen or not, I don't know. I think um, your scenario of a big crash at some point in the future is more likely. But this situation has been going on for a long time, Steve. Mm. This has been on yeah, I know. It keeps expanding and expanding. It's hard, as you said. So I'm always going to try and predict it. I know we ain't got time to talk about it today, but I wanted to. last time we had a podcast a couple of months ago, we talked about commercial property and we talked about empty buildings and empty office blocks and i know that there's massive issues coming there particularly in the united states particularly also in china mm -hmm. about commercial property crash maybe if you could give us a couple of sentences on that and we'll we'll, we'll remember that because we'll come back to talk about it again because a commercial property crash could lead to other kinds of um, impacts within the within the system within the economy couldn't it? how close are we to a commercial property correction to use a more a lighter term than fucking crash. I think the correction is with us now. They are very concerned about this in the States and they are concerned about this in Britain as well, probably more so in the States. I saw some figures last week. I can't remember them exactly, but lending to the commercial property sector has fallen considerably from what it was a while ago. Does that mean to say there'll be a major crash which causes a major, uh, a major correction across the entire banking system? Again, very difficult to say at this stage because you see the way the government can mobilize money when they have to. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, you can't just have like what's happened in the States over the last couple of uh, the last couple of mini disasters. I think JP Morgan have taken on the banks that have screwed up or they've taken on some of the debt. That can't happen continually. The government will have to step in or the government will have to make it very clear that they will support this market. And that, again, will lead to a major commitment and they will find the magic money tree because the implications of this are actually quite serious. And that's one of the reasons, again, why I'm a little bit skeptical about forecasting something here. No, I got because you. Because the stakes are so high, the government will have to step in and do something about it. Yeah, it's important for people to remember, I think, that the IMF stated that in 2009 and 10, the bailout of the banking system costs the equivalent of 50.4% of world GDP. So when they need to bail out their own system, they can find the money from from somewhere you know uh, and they'll do it again and they'll do it again but as you said it's because the stakes are so high this time that the crash might not happen because they might step in as the chinese do quite regularly and see it coming and prevent it by some early preventative measures but we'll come back to that debate another time about the commercial property markets i suppose then we'll leave it at that the we know as as, uh, as lefties tend to that the solution to the housing crisis is of course the socialization of housing provision that's a fundamental need that all humans deserve and require um, because that makes possible a rational and democratic system in which the allocation of homes for living in and for raising your family isn't left to the hidden grasping hand of the market. Um, I'll leave the last word with you, Stuart, there, mate. Uh, your last point there was crucial. We need to build homes according to social need and according to changes in demographics uh, and also uh, factors like the fact that a lot of people spend uh, a large part of the 20s and 30s single these days. So we need to build homes according to that need and they need to be genuinely affordable. 
not as something which is the vehicle for speculation. There is a whole bunch of people who made, a, I think it's called Section 106, uh, which is the provision in there that whenever they build a private development, there has to be a certain number of affordable mm, yeah. homes in there. And there are consultants, many of whom used to work for councils, that specialize in getting around that stipulation. Um, when you sort of call on about this, but the fucking disgrace we had in the Haygate estate, which is around the Elephant and Castle, which I'm sure you remember from your time in this fair city. They got rid of a huge amount of social housing there because the head of the Labour Council, I think now works in the building sector. He actually said that working class people reduced house prices and it means that you don't get good school results because it stops uh, middle class people moving into the area. So like anything else, you have to look at this through a class lens, a cultural class lens as well, an economic class lens. Thanks for that, Stuart. Socialisation of housing, that's still in our manifesto. That's still one of our goals. Thanks for talking to me today, Stuart. And folks, we'll return to you uh, another time with another very interesting podcast. So thanks very much for listening to this one. Slango forward. That, comrades, was Trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Upper workers and slang of foil.